Here we go. October 17, 2010, lecture discussion number 19 on the book of Romans. Lecture discussion number 19 on the book of Romans. Well, today we're going to be moving forward. Huzzah, huzzah, we hurrah. We're going to exit Joshua 9 and 10, and we're going to proceed into the third stage of the Gibeonite saga, which is 2 Samuel 21. So today, 2 Samuel 21, how many of you have read ahead? Don't answer that. It embarrasses me. I'm kidding. But you're going to find 2 Samuel 21 is very deep, very mysterious. Listen, all of the Bible is very deep and very mysterious. Some a little higher than others. And this is one of the very high. This is an extraordinary, mysterious section of the Old Testament. There's hundreds and hundreds of questions of which that maybe we'll do four or five. But they're very, very difficult. And by the way, when you find a section of the Bible that is this difficult, you should be what? You should be excited about that. That means there's a lot of treasure buried here. And that is obviously the truth. An extraordinary amount of hidden, deep, secret things in Second. Samuel 21. So if you want to find out about God, if you want to know how he thinks, if you want to know who he is and how you're made and what's going to happen to you when you die, um, here's where you find it. And it's really difficult for me. I had someone call me today to tell me of a a death today of a woman in her 50s, um, died of an infection in her lungs. And um, I just told the, the person that told me that to just have the son call me. She has surviving son. I'll explain to him what happened. Because this is a separation of the physical from the metaphysical, or the supernatural from the natural. You, as you know, are a two-part machine. You have a supernatural part and you have a physical part. But the key question is, is why are you designed that way? And it's important to know what happens to each part upon death and what his plan is and why there's death and all of that because it's coming for you. Sorry, not really. That's a fake sorry. Death is for our sake. Anyway, so many questions. That's a good thing. Tremendous treasure buried in Second Samuel 21. And now I, it's going to be clear, I, I believe, almost immediately, by the way, that you're not going to understand Second Samuel 21 and all the events that are hidden in there and in fact, it's hopelessly difficult. If it's not, in fact, it's not possible. You're not going to understand Second Samuel 21 unless you have gone through the progression that we have for the last few weeks, which is Genesis 34, Joshua 9 and 10. That's the Gibeonite saga. And now we're going to go on to the third stage of it. Stage one, Genesis 34. Stage two, Joshua 9 and 10. And here we are at stage three, Second Samuel 21. And we're going to constantly go back and forth. We're going to have to refer back to the first two stages, um, the Dinah incident. And then what was called the honored oath or the honored deception, if you will, which is Joshua 9 and 10. So, of course, all of you know that. And you know that we're traveling what seems to be a convoluted path through the Gibeonites in order to do what? What are we doing this for? Well, yell it out. You're in the front row. Circumcision. 
We're trying to figure out what circumcision means. We're trying to grasp the totality of the sign of circumcision for the Abrahamic covenant, the sign and the symbol that circumcision. That's how we got started. That's, that's how you begin the book of Romans. You're not going to understand the book of Romans, which is the doctrinal Leviticus of the New Testament, if you will. You're never going to figure out Romans. You're always going to struggle with things like eternal security, doctrine of grace. Uh, you're, you're, going to under, you're going to struggle through your life doctrinally. Uh, Kathy was telling me about a renowned pastor that's going off telling his congregation at length that you're not even going to know and when or if you're saved until you stand before Christ and then he may or may not shoot you. That's, maybe you didn't capitalize all the, the, maybe you didn't sign everything. Ben, we'll interrupt here a second. Ben, they tried to plug the Olympus into your new computer feed. I don't know if they succeeded. For those of you who are on the internet, that was completely worthless to you. But Ben is trying to keep the internet con- consistent. Okay, back where I was. They actually teach this. It's astonishing to me. It's absolutely astonishing. Um, and if you struggle with it, get Charles Ryrie's basic theology. He destroys it in one paragraph. It's so silly, but there are renowned pastors with huge churches that say that when you stand before Christ after death, that you will not know you're saved. You can have no assurance of salvation. You're going to find out then if you made it. And then he goes on to say, most of you didn't make it. And you're going to be cast into hell and you're just ignorant dummies. And the only way you can know if you made it is what? Be like him, the pastor. That's how you know. He's the ultimate authority of it. He is the salvation police. And he'll decide for you. So you've got to do it his way here on earth. Does that make any doctrinal sense to anyone? Why would that draw a crowd? Why is he doing it? What's his motive? Control. He wants control. He wants power. And if he's got power and he's got control over the people in his congregation, then what's he got? Money, that's right. It's all what it's about. It's as evil and as wicked. He, he chews people up and makes them think they're not saved, puts them in tremendous angst, and then he sucks their money out of them. And that's how it goes. Makes me mad, can you tell? Obviously, do I have control over this congregation? No, there's no, no possibility I do. Am I doing it for the money? That should be obvious. That should be obvious. Anyway, we're doing all this just to get to circumcision, so we can understand it, so we can understand the book of Romans. And now, if we can get circumcision, we're almost at the end of the Gibeonite saga for now. And once we're done with that, we can go to Romans 3 with some kind of idea about what's going on there. And for those who read ahead, the read aheaders, and there's not very many of you here, I know that. But you've read in Romans 3, and you know what does it begin with? What's the first thing Romans 3 is going to bring up and smack you upside the head with? That's right, circumcision. A profound question on circumcision. That's why we're doing this, so that we can understand and we can answer that question that is in Romans 3. So don't think we're out of the woods quite yet with regard to circumcision. You're still stuck with it. We've got much to deal with, and, and we'll do some of that again today. You've got to add up all those pieces that we've thrown out there, that we've gathered. We've got a bucket full of pieces. 
on circumcision, and we've got to put them all together. Circumcision has multiple attributes, if you will. It's got parts. And whenever you find a reference in, in Scripture to circumcision, you've got to discern, you've got to determine what aspects of it or aspect is being addressed. For example, when you read circumcision, is it talking about the Abrahamic covenant part? Is it talking about the Abraham, or I'm sorry, the Adam virgin birth part? which would be the sin nature of man, or the pharisaical Jewish part, or the second generation circumcision part of crossing the Jordan River behind the ark with Joshua. Is it the physical only part, just the physical part circumcision? Or is it the spiritual circumcision of the heart part? Is it the Moses Zipporah husband of blood part? They, whenever you see circumcision, you've got to begin to say, okay, what part are they talking about? Are they talking about all of it? Anyway, we'll soon get to all of that. And today is the beginning of the final phase of the Gibeonite part. And it all starts with Saul. Saul is how we're going to start Second Samuel 21. It starts with Saul. And he is the king of Jerusalem. And he is going to kill Gibeonites, murdering them. In fact, he did. Yes, sir. Oh, the date. Okay. October 17th, 2010. Lecture discussion number 19 on the book of Romans. Okay. I hope that helped us. If not, maybe we got a backup CD somewhere. But again, 2 Samuel 21 starts with Saul... The king of Israel, the king of Jerusalem, killing Gibeonites, murdering them. Does that remind you of anything? Okay. Certainly, I hope it reminds you of Joshua 10, where we just left. The king of Jerusalem deciding that he's going to kill Gibeonites. Now, he didn't succeed, but Saul succeeded. So I, all the time, I seem to have the king of Jerusalem, or the king of Israel, if you will, trying to kill Gibeonites. And then if you, once you get Joshua 10, you know you're going to have to deal with that again. <coughs> Where else do I have Saul killing Gibeonites? I have it in Acts 9. I have the, the conversion of another murderer of Christians. A law-based Pharisee killing grace-based Christians. And the Pharisee's name is Saul. So there it is. There's your, there's your New Testament compliment. And Saul has blindness for three days, three nights, without sight, without food, without water. So we're going to have to clearly add Acts 9 to 2 Samuel 21, just as we add King David's other solution to God's judgment upon Israel. That's 2 Samuel 24. David has three choices in 2 Samuel 24. And that, of course, when you see three choices, I hope you go back to Genesis and Adam's three choices. And obviously, we should expect Adam and David to be connected. Both are extraordinary types of Christ. So we should pay attention to them. Adam is tied to the Abrahamic covenant. How? How's he tied? Through the sign of circumcision. And the Abrahamic covenant and the sign of circumcision is directly connected to the Davidic covenant sign of the holy thing, which is the virgin birth of the Messiah. Is anyone still with me? Yay. One. 
That's cool. <laughs> Glad you came. That's a lot of information. I threw it out there on purpose, knowing it would confuse you. But hopefully someday you'll go, oh, yeah, that all makes sense. That's my plan. I have learned. I have ice in my Coke. So I get to chew the ice, and that probably will show up on the uh, CD and stuff, huh? That's cool. I kind of hope it does. I used to flick the pin here. That made Jane really mad when I did that. She said, what about the poor people that listen to those CDs? Well, I have to make them know that I think about them, at least. So I'm chewing the ice, trying to annoy as many people as I can every Sunday. That's our motto here, right? Okay. Don't despair if you don't make all the connections that I just did. David to, I mean, Adam to David, circumcision to Abrahamic covenant, uh, uh, nature of sin, circumcision and how it is part of the nature of sin. It's a, a directly addressing the, the holy thing or the virgin birth, how that's the doctrine of grace. So the sign of David and the sign of Abraham are linked together. Ab- Adam is linked to David. Don't despair if you don't get that. Soon. Uh, little grasshoppers, you shall be expert. You will. I have to say it to you enough over and over again, and then pretty soon you figure out the terminology and you get it. It's just like anything else. But for now, this minute, I want you to note Adam had what kind of covering? He had a bloodless covering of figs, didn't he? And what did God do? He stripped the bloodless covering of figs and put on a blood covering How did he get the blood covering? He had to slay something. Most theologians believe he slayed two lambs or two sheep. And so Adam had and Eve then had a covering made by God through the slaying of two lambs. And David's census in Exodus, uh, I'm sorry, in 2 Samuel 24 and eventually Exodus 30:11 through 12, where the silver is defined for you, what the silver means. David had a census without silver, and that is a bloodless census. That may not make any sense to you right now, but trust me that it is. David went out with a bloodless census, just as Adam had a bloodless covering. And Satan was at both events, by the way. The killing of the Gibeonites brings a three-year famine, the same as the bloodless census in 2 Samuel 20. 24:13. Now, some of your Bibles will say that it is a seven-year famine, but I, it's not. I think it's clear that it's a three-year uh, famine, and you have a translation error. Get used to that, by the way. There are translation errors in some of your Bibles. In fact, all of our Bibles. The Bible is perfect, inspired, and flawless in its original form. Unfortunately, we have to find that original form. Also notice that 2 Samuel 24 is an angel of the Lord event, which is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ or a Christophany. Christ comes to David and he starts killing people. Just as he was with Moses, just as with Joshua, now with David, a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ Christophany. Moses, why did he come to Moses? Because Moses did not have the circumcision, right? No blood. Why did he come to Joshua? Joshua was after circumcision or after blood. Why did he come to David? 
because there was a bloodless census, a census without the silver atonement money, the blood money, if you will. So, only with Joshua is Christ pleased. So if you look at Moses, no blood. Joshua, blood. David, no blood. Adam, no blood. Had to put a blood covering on Adam. Hopefully you'll understand how circumcision fits into all of that. Okay, that was the introduction to 2 Samuel 21, 1 through 14. Now let's read the text. Here we go. Open up your Bibles. I will have some more ice. Ready? First word is what? Some will have now, the correct word is then, which tell you, tells you it, correct, it connects back to the previous chapter. So no, right off the bat, if I see a now or a then, it connects to the previous chapter. What's the obvious question? How is it connecting? So here we go. Then there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. What's the obvious question? Why is there a famine? Somehow it connects back to the original or to the other chapter. The murder of Amasa. And David inquired of the Lord. What's the obvious question? How do you do that? And the Lord answered, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. What's the obvious question? So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. This is a remnant again. This is a saved remnant. Notice that pattern will keep happening. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, whatever you say, I will do for you. So just to sum up, I've got a famine. Why do I have a famine? Because a previous king killed the Gibeonites. Why did he kill the Gibeonites? Because of his zeal for Israel and Judah. The new king, King David, the shepherd king, the type of Christ. The other king, by the way, Saul is the type of who? Let's just get that out on the table. Yeah, he's an antichrist figure. The new king, the king that follows the Antichrist, do you see that pattern? The shepherd king, the king of Israel, will follow the Antichrist, right? That's millennial um, timeline. And, they, and he goes to the Gibeonites and he said, what shall I do for you? What, what can I pay you? And they say, we won't take any money. We don't want any money. Nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. Now, that's very interesting. Then they answered that whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel. 
Let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gebeah of Saul, whom the Lord choose. And the king said, I will give them. And then it's listed who they are. But the king spared the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armoni and Mephizabeth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, who she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, and the Metholhahite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they all fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest and the first days in the beginning of the barley harvest, which is April. Why are we given that information? We need to know when they were hung. That's important. Because why? We have a famine. Why do we have a famine? We're not growing anything. Why aren't we growing anything? Now Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it on herself for the on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains. By the way, there's a rock at Gibeon that's very important. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told when Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done. When David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, I'm sorry, then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh, who had stolen them from the streets of Bashan, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul and Gilboa. So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer of the land. So that's what I got. I got Saul killed some Gibeonites. Then Saul was killed by the Philistines, right? Hung on a, on a wall. Somebody came and stole the bones. David goes and gets the, the men that were hung as, an, a, as a, if you will, as a retribution by the Gibeonites. And he takes those bones and he puts the bones with Saul and Jonathan and he takes them up and he buries them. And then after that, after all of that was done, the hanging and the retrieval of Jonathan and Saul, then God heeded the prayer of the land and the famine ended. Okay? So there you go. Let's take on the obvious questions. Once again, the Gibeonites have been killed by Israelites. And this time, God responds with famine. God is not happy. And he responds with famine. Now, it's important to notice when this all happens. We'll get to that in a minute. But a very good rule to remember. God is doing what with the famine? What's the purpose of the famine? He's killing 
Jews with it, isn't he? He's killing Israelites. They're dying from famine. This is a God-induced response to the killing of the Gibeonites. And he brings a famine. Do the Gibeonites know, by the way, that the famine that has come to the land for three years. How many people died? This is why I like to study famines, by the way. That's why I spent a little time looking at the Holodomor, the Ukrainian famine that was caused by the Russian communists back in the time of World War II, essentially. They, they slaughtered millions of Ukrainians with famine. What communists do, by the way, in case you ever think you should trust one of them. Very good rule to remember. When God responds this way, when he intervenes this way by killing Jews, those are his chosen people. That's his firstborn children. He did it all the time. Quail in the wilderness, for example, the Korah rebellion, the Nadab Abai who first day on the job, they're dead. Just got their uniforms, they put the wrong fire on the altar, and he kills them both instantly. Why does God do that? Why is he killing the nation of Israel with famine? When he does it, what do you suppose has happened? Why does he do it? Is he just nasty, nasty old, capricious, angry God hates his own people, Israel? Just likes to kill people, starve them to death? That's, by the way, what you'll get in the uh, editorial section of almost every newspaper. They don't understand it. Why do you suppose this has happened? Why? What's God doing? Why is he using famine against the nation of Israel who slaughtered the Gibeonites? What's he doing? What he's doing is he's protecting something. He's protecting a great doctrine. Whenever you read in Scripture about God doing something, you see all the time, uh, it, it's brought up by politicians all the time. It just drives me insane. Okay, I'm already insane. So it drives me further insane. Okay, that's probably not possible. So it still makes me mad. What they do is they look at the son that is not that is dishonoring his parents and must be stoned. And they don't understand anything about that. They don't know that that is a great doctrine at stake. Why? What is the son doing? How is he dishonoring his parents? What specifically is he dishonoring them for? They are the second generation that was circumcised and entered into Israel. They are the generation that was to pass on the truth of God to their children. This is a son that does not honor the truth of God. And God stones him. Why? Why? Why not just let him go? Why does God stop Israel all the time? And why does he use death, physical death, to do it? See, a great doctrine is at stake here. That's why this famine is here. Eternal life or eternal death is at stake here. This is the doctrine of salvation by Christ alone. It's under attack. Whenever you kill Gibeonites, you're doing something horrible doctrinally. And God must stop it. He must come. And He comes because of the sake of Israel and for the sake of who else? Us. For the sake of Gentiles, Israel has been chosen 
by God to be the witness of the one true God of creation and his plan of salvation. And when they refuse to do it, then he is he must come. He's got to keep them to where they do what they have been chosen to do. So whenever in Scripture, the Old Testament or the New Testament, you see this. By the way, let me just put this. You need the, the people describe it this way all the time. Uh, the you really get this if you're trying to play a sport or something or shoot a gun. You need two eyes. The testaments are two eyes. In order to have proper depth perception, to get the full vision, to understand how the Bible works, you have to have uh, both eyes. You cannot understand the Old Testament without the New or the New without the Old. Both are necessary for complete vision. Anyway, whenever you come across God, Jesus Christ... Same thing, right? Whenever you come across God bringing plague or famine or fire or flood, physical death to Israel, you should immediately recognize that the doctrine of Christ, salvation, restoration through the blood of Christ, is being protected by God for the sake of Israel and for the sake of us. Israel is God's alone nation at this point. He will not allow them to continue in doctrinal error. He won't. That's Romans 2.24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He won't let that happen. Why does he want to get the Gentiles saved? Why does he use Israel? Why not just put up a sign? You know, why not flash things? He uses the nation of Israel to save the Gentiles. When they refuse, he stops them. Israel will not be allowed to forsake their assignment to be watchmen for the world, a nation of priests. They're not going to be allowed to forsake it. They can run from it, but he's going to chase them down, and God will make them tell the truth. It's their role. He chose them for it. You see the bumper sticker all the time. I say it a lot. The Jews will write this. If we are the chosen people of God, please, God, choose somebody else. Because every time they screw up, what does he do? He comes after them with tremendous amount of retribution. He will, by force, stop Israel from hating the Gentiles. That's us. He's going to stop them. They have the truth of God. And by the way, why do they hate the Gentiles? And he's going to make them be like him eventually. And what is like him? Seeking after the lost. Seeking after loving the Gentiles. That's what he wants them to do. They're not doing it. In fact, they're doing what? They're killing the Gentile. He's not going to let them do it. And for now, Israel is lost. It's a shame, huh? And by the way, that's the same case for the church. Let's put it, let's put it down to applicational, in case you think I never do applicational sermons. One way or the other, you're going to be a witness. One way or the other. You're going to be just like Israel. You can witness willingly or you can witness unwillingly. What's unwillingly? Not good. That's right. Dana just said dead. That's right. That's a, that's a Corinthians principle. You can either witness willingly or he will take you out. That's, it. that's the deal. That's what you signed up for. So if you're not witnessing for God, then expect what? A beating. A horrible, horrible beating. Good luck with that. He's not going to let you be comfortable. He's not. 
That's by the way. People come to me and say, I can't tell if I'm saved. I say, you having a hard time? Well, yeah, good. That means you're saved. If you're a Christian out there and you're doing nothing, and you've got no retribution coming your way, God's letting you go through your life doing nothing, you better be worried. Willingly or unwillingly, we will be witnesses of God's holiness, His justice, His love, and His goodness. Is it good for God to kill Jews who are killing Gibeonites with a famine? Is that good? Yes, that's good. Good for who? Good for us. Good for the Jews. He has to do it. I highly recommend that you choose willingly. If you if you don't think you're gonna if you think you're gonna escape, come see me. I'll introduce you to some willinglies. I'll introduce you to some unwillinglies. You can figure out which way you want to go. Okay, there's your application. Now let's notice a few things now and ask the obvious questions. The then. Then there was a famine. What connects the previous chapter? That's the murder of Amasa at Gibeon by Joab. What connects the murder of Amasa at Gibeon, that's your first clue, by Joab with a sword? What connects that to the three-year famine? We've got to solve that. Question two. How long did David allow this famine to go on before he finally asked? How many people died of famine before David finally said, Okay, what's the problem? What's your guess? Yes, looks like he waited three years. What's the obvious question? I had dead people everywhere. Why wouldn't David go, Hey, what's the, what's, what I got to do? How many dead people before David finally inquired? How happy would you be with David? This is not personal, David. There's, I got David, David right, right in a row here. Why did he wait? We call that good kingship there. Well, I can wait. What do you think moved him? Why did, did David, by the way, already know the reason for the famine before he inquired of the Lord? Did he already know this is because Saul killed the Gibeonites? Did he know that? What exactly is the inquired of the Lord process? How did he inquire of the Lord? Is it a ceremony? Was the inquiring of the Lord made, was it a public event? When did Saul kill the Gibeonites? How long ago are we talking about? Saul killed the Gibeonites. David's at the end of his life. So we're talking 30 to 50 years ago. Saul kills the Gibeonites. When, by the way, did, did Joshua make the covenant with the Gibeonites that you don't kill a Gibeonite? 400 years ago. So look at what you got. I probably got... Genesis 34, where Israel killed the Gibeonites. I go 400 years, I have Joshua show up where you don't kill the Gibeonites, right? I got 400 years and I'm killing Gibeonites again. How many Gibeonites did Saul kill? Somebody can answer that, I read it to you. How many did he kill? Here's a better question. What's the better question? Yeah, how many are left? 
It's called, Saul tried to kill them all. It says so. Why did Saul kill them? Was it for the same reason that Acts 9 Saul was killing Christians? Was it for the same reason? What do you think? Why did Saul seek to kill the Gibeonites? What is the meaning of this sentence? In his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. He clearly doesn't have zeal for God. He has zeal for Israel and Judah. What is that? What is the difference between God and Israel and Judah? In that sentence, in that context. What does Israel and Judah, what do they think or what do they believe or what are they doing in contrast to what God is doing or God is thinking? I'm going to tell you, this is grace versus works again. Why did God wait until now to bring a famine to Israel? He waits a long time before he finally blows them up. Why wasn't the death of Saul, because I have a war between the house of Saul and the house of David. I've got, I've got Abner, Joab, all this death and killing there. If the house of Saul is defeated in 2 Samuel 3, why wasn't that sufficient? Because clearly it wasn't. So even though Saul's house was slaughtered pretty much by David's house, it wasn't enough. Why did God seemingly violate Deuteronomy 24? Has anybody ever asked you that question with him? You get it all the time. What's Deuteronomy 24, 16? Let's go read it. You don't have to turn there. I'm a professional. I beat you. I don't have tabs either. I've got duct tape. I still beat you. Fathers, Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. Did God violate that here? Does it look to you, did you read this and say, why are the sons of Saul being killed by God when Saul did it? And they're innocent little buggers. Did you think that? If you did, you're in trouble because obviously God did not violate Deuteronomy 24.16. So you got to ask yourself, if you don't understand that, how is it that God did not violate 24.16? By the way, is it good, is it just, is it fair that Saul, Saul's descendants are hung by the Gibeonites? Is that good? That's good. How does that not violate Deuteronomy 24:16? They obviously are being hung for their own sins, aren't they? And it says so, if you read it in the text. We'll get to that in a second. It's justice, it's fair, it's good. Yes, 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 always. How so then is the real question. Why did the Gibeonites choose the hanging of seven men? Saul, and by the way, they wanted to kill him at Saul's house, if you will, at Saul's hometown. The first site of Saul's throne, Gebeah of Saul. How far away is Gebeah from Gibeon? Not far. Not far. Now, let's, let me repeat something. How did Saul get to be king? People wanted Saul to be king. 
They didn't want God to be king. God is king. He's sitting on the throne. What is the throne? It is the mercy seat in the temple. And God is sitting on the mercy seat on his throne. And what's he look like? He looks like bright light or fire. He's the Shekinah glory. And they don't want him to be king of Israel. They want a man to be king. And they pick Saul. They reject the Shekinah glory because he's not a man. We want a man like all the other nations. We don't want you. You're a fire. We don't like that. We want a human being. So they pick Saul. And why did they pick Saul? Because he is the most beautiful man in all of Israel. He is also the tallest man in all of Israel. He is the most physically powerful human being in all of Israel. That's who they want. And by the way, when Christ comes, who is the most beautiful, of course, you can't tell that because he hid himself in, in Christ. Became, uh, Isaiah tells us that he hid himself in a form that is, was not attractive at all. I get in trouble for that, by the way. I People have been mad at me for pointing that out, but that's what the Bible says. And by the way, it's the opposite of Saul. We should expect that. It's the opposite of Judas. We should expect that. It's the opposite of the Antichrist. We should expect that. God's ways are not our ways. He, Christ was not an attractive human being. He didn't want to be, but he was a beautiful human being. The most beautiful, but you had to know that he was God. But in Matthew 12, they reject Christ who came as man. They reject the Shekinah glory, and then they reject Christ as he... So Israel is in the habit of rejecting God for whatever reason. Okay, A.W. Pink points out clearly that Saul is a type of the Antichrist, the beautiful, the tallest, the powerful human. And Saul sought to eliminate the servants of God, the devoted ones. That's who the Gibeonites are. They're the devoted ones of God, and he sought to kill them all. He's trying to eliminate, to exterminate them. He doesn't want any left. Who does that sound like? That is an Antichrist event. That is a tribulational event. Okay, more questions. I want you to explain Rizpah. What is she trying to accomplish? She's chasing away birds just like Abraham does in Genesis 15. Why is she doing that? What's she hoping to accomplish by doing that? Why did David retrieve the bones of Saul and Jonathan? Why then, after all of that, did God lift the, the, the famine? Okay, there's your obvious question. Let's answer a couple of this. Notice this. What they say. David said, do you want money? They say, we don't want money. And we don't want you to kill any man in Israel for us. But as for the man who consumed us. That's what the Gibeonites said. That's their definition of Saul. Saul is the man who consumed them. Saul sought to exterminate the Gibeonites in the nation of Israel, and he did it because he thought it would be the right thing to do in order to get Israel and Judah in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. He thought he would become more powerful and more popular if he kills, exterminates the Gibeonites who are under the covenant of salvation given to them by who? Joshua which is a form of Jesus. So the ones who have a covenant with Christ, Saul wants to exterminate them. He wanted to destroy the covenant of Yeshua and the Gibeonites. So what what do they represent in the nations 
of Israel and Judah. Who are they? How were they saved? We went over this last week. What's that? That's right. They were saved. Here they were, the Gibeonites. They were faced with destruction. They knew they were condemned. They knew that they deserved condemnation. They heard that it was coming for them. They devised a plan and they threw themselves under the mercy of Christ, if you will. The mercy of Joshua. Do what is good and right with us. And God makes them servants. He puts His yoke upon them and they become the woodcutters and the water carriers for the altar. They are the most biblically sound group in the entire, if you will. They're the most doctrinally literate group in the entire nation of Israel. In fact, I'll go further. They're the only ones in the nation of Israel that has any idea that salvation is by grace alone, through Christ Jesus alone, through blood alone. The rest of the nation of Israel is pharisaical, law, works-based nonsense. And Saul wanted to exterminate the ones that understand salvation by grace. Once again, the children of Israel represent works, law-based, human-based salvation. You can make it yourself or it's some kind of combination of God and you. The Gibeonites knew. The Gibeonites came to God as hopeless sinners deserving condemnation who threw themselves at the feet of Joshua and said, do what is good and right. And gladly took obedience to God and were called the devoted ones. Human-based, law-based, works-based salvation versus grace by the blood of Christ alone. Human-based salvation is evil, it is wicked, and it is hopelessness. Now, as for the sons, just in case, notice what God says over here. God says this. And the Lord answered. We've got three years of famine where Jews are dying by the thousands. David finally, after three years, says, why? The Lord said 50 years ago, essentially, if you will. That's a rounded figure. It is because of Saul and what? And his bloodthirsty sons. So these are not innocent sons. These are bloodthirsty sons who did what? Who sought to exterminate the Gibeonites. God is not hanging innocent men, in case you thought so. You disregard God's description and you disregard His justice, His goodness, His love, His holiness. And please don't do that. The Gibeonites, by the way, if you hang a man on a tree, what have you said about him? He's cursed. He's accursed by God. These are cursed men who tried to exterminate the one group of people who understood better than anybody salvation by grace. The Gibeonites knew these men were accursed. They knew their Bible. By the way, why did they wait so long? Why didn't they come forward and say, hey, you can't kill us? Why did they wait till David came to them and say, what do you want? How many of them were left? By the way, not very many. Saul almost got them all. I know how many he got. How many did he get? Him and his bloodthirsty house. How many Gibeonites did he kill? I'll help you. 
almost wiped them out. But a remnant remains. Notice it said that. But of the remnant of the Amorites. Okay, final question. What was Rizpah trying to do? Did she protest the hangings, by the way? Is there any evidence in here that she protests the hangings? She doesn't protest the hangings. She knew they deserved physical death. What's she trying to do? She's not worried about physical death anymore, is she? She's worried about what? Eternal death. She believes she can do something about it. How long did they have before they were hung, by the way? They were taken to the Gibeonites. What did the Gibeonites do to them? Hang them immediately? What did they do? How was this process going on? It's an interesting thing. Yes. Yes, there's violations. It's seemingly there's a violation. They were hunging. She, she fights off for a long, long time. See, you're supposed to, Bill's absolutely correct, you're supposed to hang them and then bring them down before nightfall. But they're not. They're left there. And Rizpah is out there fighting. She knows they're accursed. She knows they deserve something. And she's battling. And David was told what was happening. And then he goes out and gets Saul. Why is his response to Rizpah to go out and get the bones of Saul and Jonathan that also hung on a wall for a long time? And he gets them all and he buries them. Okay? There's all your questions. Next week, we'll answer those. Now we have turn on the monitor and start the football game. That's how we... Let's all rise and be dismissed.